0: regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah speaks about Himself in Surah Al-Ikhlas. So, what do we have in this particular chapter then? Al-Ahad. قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ Ahad, and the other name, Al-Wahid. Both of these two names indicate, of course, the oneness of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Huma ismani dalani ala There are two names that indicate the oneness of Allah. Al-ahad, al-wahid, indicating the oneness of Allah. And what do we mean by the oneness of Allah? Obviously that there are no other deities and partners or equals or participants, and that there is nothing else equivalent or or, or equal or participant to Allah in His names or attributes in any way. Allah is one and single and unique in His names and attributes of perfection. We have some of those names And we have some of those descriptions But there is no comparison between the creation and the creator We may say for example You can name a person with certain names That are Allah's names But without putting Al at the beginning For example, Karim. Kareem can be the name of a person, but when we speak about Allah, we say Abd al Allah is Al-Kareem. But without the Al, you can say Kareem. So some names of Allah, the creation has those names, but without the Al, without saying Abdul such and such obviously then. But that does not mean that the creation are equal to Allah in those names, or that the creation are equal to Allah in His attributes. There is a huge difference between the Creator and the creation. And one of the examples that Sheikh al Rahimahullah Ta'ala gave regarding the word leg. If you say to someone, describe a leg... A leg could be described as saying it's like a lamppost. Somebody may say it is like a tree trunk. Somebody may say it is like a small pin. All of those descriptions would be correct and they would all be valid. It is like a lamppost, meaning the leg of a giraffe. It is like a tree trunk the leg of an elephant, it is like a small pin, the leg of an ant or a spider, all of those descriptions are valid, but they are all so different to each other, Lamp post to a small pin, trunk of a tree, how wide and big it is, all of them are completely different, but the word used for the leg of an elephant, the leg of a giraffe, the leg of a, an insect, they're all legs. As Sheikh al said, therefore, if the same word can be used in creation for different things, and there is so much difference between them, the leg of an elephant to the leg of a spider, the leg of the giraffe to the leg of an ant, there is so much difference between creation upon the same word, leg, then how much difference do you think there will be between the creation and the creator? The difference will be even greater, far, far greater. And that's why we cannot imagine or describe the names and attributes of Allah. So Allah is one, in his names and attributes of perfection. فَهُوَ وَاحِدٌ فِي ذَاتِهِ لا شبيه لا. He is one in his essence and he has no resemblance. وَاحِدٌ فِي صِفَاتِهِ لا لا. He is one in his attributes, nothing comparable to him. وَاحِدٌ فِي أفعاله لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَلَا ظَهِيرٌ One in his actions. No participant or equal to him in regards to his actions. وَاحِدٌ فِي أُلُوهِيَّتِهِ فَلَيْسَ لَهُ نِدْ فِي الْمَحَبَّةِ وَالتَّعْظِيمِ وَالظُلْ وَالْخُضُوعِ He is one in our worship to Him alone. Meaning all of the creation, our worship is directed to Him alone. He is one in His uluhiya. All of our love and the submission and all of our worship is directed to Him alone. وَهُوَ الْوَاحِدُ الَّذِي حَتَّى تَفَرَّدَ بِكُلِّ And He is one to the extent of the greatness of His attributes, meaning that His attributes are so great and perfect that He is single and one and unique in them. And there is nothing in creation that can be comparable to His names or attributes. And there is nothing in creation that can encompass and understand all of that. And that's why in the Qur'an it mentions too, لَا تُدْرِكُهُ الْأَبْصَارِ وَهُوَ يُدْرِكُ الْأَبْصَارِ That on the day of judgment when the believers will see Allah, they will not, with their eyesight, will not be able to encompass what they see from the might and the majesty of Allah. They will see Allah, but they will not fully encompass everything that they see, from the might and the majesty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَقَدْ كَانَ تَكَرُّرُ وَوْرُودِ اسْمَ اللَّهِ الْوَاحِدِ فِي الْقُرْآنِ الْكَرِيمِ فِي مَقَامَات مُتَعَدِّدَةِ فِي سَيَاق تقرير التوحيد وإبطال الشرك والتنديد. and the name of Allah al-Wahid. This name and attribute of Allah being the one is mentioned in different parts of the Quran in the context of speaking about the Tawheed of Allah. And rebuking and refuting any form of shirk or setting up partners alongside him. So for example in the Quran wa ilahukum Ilahun and your Lord, the one to worship your God, the one whom you worship is only one Ilahun إِلَاهٌ وَاحِدٌ Ilahukum? The one whom you worship is ilahun wahidun. Is only one. The one who you worship is only one. La ilaha illa huwa. There is no other deity deserving of worship in truth except he. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In another ayah. قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا مُنْذِرُ Say that I am a warner. وَمَا مِنْ إِلَٰهٍ إِلَّا اللَّهِ الْوَاحِدُ الْقَهَّارِ And there is no God except Allah. There is no other deity to be worshipped in truth إِلَّا اللَّهِ Except Allah الْوَاحِدُ The One There is no other deity to be worshipped in truth except Allah, the one, Al-Qahhar, the one who is uh, mighty and majestic and powerful over all of his creation. In another ayah, (inaudible) Indeed, the one whom you worship is only one. رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا وَرَبُّ الْمَشَارِقِ The Lord of the heavens and the earth and that which is between them. Your Lord to worship is only one. The Lord of the heavens and the earth and that which is between them. وَقَالَ سُبْحَانَهُ فِي بَيَانَ أَنَّ هَذِهِ الوحدانية هي خُلَاسَةُ دَعْوَةِ الرُّسُلِ and Allah highlighted to us in the Qur'an that the da'wah of all of the prophets and messengers was to this, that Allah is one and for you, He is the only one to worship, that all of you must single out your worship to the one true deity, Deserving of that worship, as Allah told us in the Qur'an, قُلْ إِنَّمَا يُوحَى إِلَيَّ أَنَّمَا إِلَاهُكُمْ إِلَاهٌ وَاحِدٌ. Say that it has been revealed to me, it has been revealed to me, that indeed the one for you to worship is only one deity. The one whom you worship is ilahun wahidun, is only one deity. فَهَلْ أَنْتُمْ Muslimun, So are you then Muslims? In another ayah, قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشَرٌ مِثْلُوكُمْ Say that I am only human like you. يُوحَى إِلَيَّ But revelation comes to me. أَنَّمَا Ilahukum إِلَاهٌ وَاحِدٌ what revelation? That indeed the one that you worship is only one deity deserving of worship in truth. وَاحِدٌ <inaudible> فَاسْتَقِيمُوا <inaudible> <inaudible> So be upright in your worship of him and seek forgiveness from him. وَوَيْلٌ <inaudible> <inaudible> And woe be disaster be upon those who associate partners alongside him. In another ayah, فَإِلَاهُكُمْ وَاحِدٌ فَلَهُ Aslimu The one whom you worship, your ilah, is only one. So submit to him. إِلَاهُكُمْ إِلَاهٌ وَاحِدٌ Falahu Aslimu He is only one the true deity deserving of worship so submit to him These are the meanings and the background behind the names of Allah al Ahad Al Wahid They are all indicating the greatness of Tawheed of singling out Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala and that's why the prophets and the messengers, when they would give da'wah to their people, they would say to them, Ya قَوْمِ اللَّهِ مَا لَكُمْ مِنْ غَيْرُهِ O oh, people, worship Allah, the one, the only, مَا لَكُمْ مِنْ غَيْرُهِ You do not have any other deity besides Him. There is none other, only Allah, Subhanahu wa Taala, alone deserving of your worship. وَقَالَ فِي فِي ثالث تنزه ذلك. There are people, of course, who have claimed that Allah is not one, but that in fact He is. Three, as some of them claim, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refuted and rejected this false claim, that He is one of three, Father, Spirit, Son, all of these things that are mentioned, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks and refutes and rejects all of that in the Qur'an itself. So for example, لَوْ أَرَادَ اللَّهُ أَن يَتَّخِذَ وَلَدَا لَصْطَفَى مِمَّا يَخْلُقُ مَا يَشَأْ سُبْحَانَهُ هُوَ اللَّهُ الْوَاحِدُ qahab. That if Allah wanted to take a son he would have chosen Whoever he wished from his creation Subhanah May Allah be removed and free From such deficiencies That's the meaning of Subhanallah That Allah is far above And removed from him Are these deficiencies and these ill statements Who Allahul Wahidul Qahar Allah then tells us he is Allah, the One. If Allah wanted to take someone, He would have taken whomsoever He wished in His creation. But He is free from such deficiency, and He is One, who Allahu al-Wahidu. He is Allah, the One, only. In another ayah, "Wa la taqulu and do not say three. Father, Son, Spirit, Ghost, all these things that they say. Allah says, وَلَا تَقُولُوا ثَلَاثًا Do not say three. إِنْتَهُ خَيْرًا لَكُمْ إِنَّمَا اللَّهُ إِلَاهٌ وَحْدٌ Stop that. Refrain from that. From this claim that Allah has a son and Allah has some other partners and one of three and Trinity, refrain from any association of partners alongside Him and claiming this Trinity. Rather, Allah tells you, Innama, Innama in Arabic indicates a restriction. Like we say, Only, I only took this bottle of water. I only uh sat on that chair. Only did this or I only did that, meaning you didn't do anything else you only did this or you only took that. In Nama in Arabic indicates restriction. In Nama Allahu Ilahunit that indeed Allah is only one, meaning nothing else restricted to one only one deity deserving of worship. And Allah said, لَقَدْ كَفَرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ ثالث ثَلَاثًا وَمَا مِنْ إِلَٰهٍ إِلَّا واحد. They have disbelieved certainly those who say that Allah is one of three. These are ayat in the Quran. They have disbelieved certainly those who say that Allah is one of three. وَمَا مِنْ إِلَاهٍ إِلَّا وَاحِدٌ And there is no other deity except the one true deity deserving of worship, Allah. Clear as you can be, clear as these ayat could possibly be, they have disbelieved certainly those who claim Allah is one of three. There is no other deity except one deity in truth to be worshipped إلا إله واحد وقال تعالى في إطال عقائد المشركين قل أي شيء أكبر شهادة قل الله شهيد بيني وبينكم وأوحي إلي هذا القرآن لأنذركم به ومن بلغ. أَإِنَّكُمْ لَتَشْهَدُونَ Allahi <laughs> اللَّهِ آلِهَةً أُخْرَىٰ قُلْ لَا أَشْهَدُ قُلْ إِنَّمَا هُوَ إِلَٰهٌ وَاحِدٌ وَإِنَّنِي بَرِئٌ مِّمَّا تُشْرِكُونَ And these ayat talking about the mushrikun, about how they took other deities alongside Allah, and the believers they declare their innocence from that, and they testify to the worship of Allah alone, and they declare their innocence from what the people they associate and commit shirk alongside Allah with. In another ayah, وَقَالَ اللَّهُ لَا تَتَّخِذُوا إِلَهَيْنِ اثْنَيْنِ إِنَّمَا هُوَ إِلَهٌ وَاحِدٌ do not take two gods. Another ayah. Do not take two gods. Indeed, he is only one deity worthy of worship. Inna ma ilahun So you see this in the Quran all over in different chapters, in different places, Allah affirming his oneness. He alone is the one deserving of worship, and that oneness is exactly what all of the prophets and messengers came with in their da'wah. Because we know from the first messenger to the last of the messengers, all of the messengers and prophets, their da'wah in the principles was the same. It was the da'wah to tawheed, to worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, singling Him out. And then the rulings and the fiqh of every revelation or the prophets and messengers may have been different. But the overall foundations of the religion were the same for all of them. All of them had the same foundation of tawheed in their da'wah and in their call. هَذَا وَقَدْ أَفَادَ هَذَانِ الْإِسْمَانِ الْوَاحِدِ الْأَحَدِ تَوَحْهُدَ الرَّبِّ سُبْحَانَهُ بِجَمِيعِ الْكَمَالَاتِ بِحَيْثِ لَا يُشَارِكُهُ فِيهَا مُشَارِكِ So these two names, they indicate the absolute oneness of Allah in all of His perfect and beautiful names and attributes. A person needs to think about this carefully because there are many actions that people do these days and from the olden days that indicate and show they do not understand this name of Allah. This now highlights the absolute oneness of Allah that all of your worship must be singled out absolutely to Allah alone. That's what it means, Al-Ahad, Al-Wahid, and all of those ayat in the Qur'an telling us, Your Lord is only what? Then how can a person go to the shrines and the graves and the tombs of deceased individuals, saying that these were awliya of Allah, and they will help take my dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for me. So they call upon the dead seeking assistance, calling upon the dead seeking for them to be intermediaries, seeking from them intercession. How can it be that you are calling upon them when you must understand that Allah is one and all of your worship is to Him alone. You do not call upon the dead even with the excuse that they are just going to take my dua to Allah. Allah has not commanded you to call upon the dead or others besides Him for them to take your dua to Him. Allah has not commanded you to call even upon the Prophet wasallam after his death. And we know when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi was alive, for example, when there was a drought... So on one occasion when there was a drought They went to the Prophet Sallallahu Asking him to make dua to Allah for the rain to come That's permissible But then when he died And there was another drought which occurred Did they again go to the Prophet Sallallahu And ask him to make the dua to Allah This time they did not Because they knew you cannot go and ask somebody to make dua who has now passed away. When he was alive, they would go to him and he would make dua, etc. No problem if somebody is alive, like you hear people saying sometimes, make dua for me. When somebody is alive, okay. There's a discussion behind that, but generally okay. But if somebody has died, You don't go to the grave of a person who has died and ask him, make dua for me, or make this dua, make that dua. So when the Prophet ﷺ was alive, they would ask him. But when he died, they did not go and ask him anymore. And the proof is, when the drought occurred after his death, instead they went to Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, and asked him instead, Is Abbas superior to the Prophet ﷺ? Of course not. So why did they go to him? Why not go to the messenger? They were there in Medina. His grave was right there. Why not go to him? Because they knew it is no longer permissible to go and ask the messenger. He has passed away. He is now deceased. It is no longer permissible. So instead they went to Abbas in that case. But when he was alive, would they go to anybody else? Then they would ask him, he is the messenger of Allah. So this indicates the impermissibility of directing any of your worship to anyone else besides Allah, including all of these claims, but these are awliya of Allah, they are righteous, or even going to the grave of the messenger, making dua there and asking him, this is all from your misunderstandings, or the misunderstandings of the people regarding Tawheed, regarding Allah being one and the only one deserving of worship therefore. The second name that is mentioned here, well in the actual chapter as you see, وَلَمْ kufuwan uh, ahad. In Surah Al-Ikhlas it mentions that there is no equal to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and prior to that lam Neither did he beget nor was he begotten Neither did he give birth nor was he given birth to This is a refutation of the Christians and the Jews Who believe that Allah had a son It is also a refutation of the Mushrikun Who believe that Allah had daughters That the angels were the daughters of Allah And all of these types of lies that were made regarding Allah, then all of them are rebuked here. لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكن له أحد And there is nothing, no one equal or similar to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Before that, there is also the name As-Samad. قُلْ الله اللَّهُ أَحَدْ Allah As-Samad Allah-Assamad As-Samad, Allah As-Samad. As-Samad. This has different meanings, and one of them is a Sayyidul Azim, a Ladiqad Kamula fi ilmihi wa hikmatihi wa hilmihi wa Qudratihi wa izatihi wa wa jami'i sifatihi. That a Samad is the one who has perfection in his knowledge and wisdom and ability and power, and in all of his attributes, a Samad is the one who has perfection in his knowledge and wisdom and ability and power and greatness and in all of his attributes. And if that is the case, then all of the creation we are in need of him and all of us in creation with all of our needs we return them back to him and that's one of the meanings of as-samad allah is as-samad the one who is upon absolute perfection that all of the creation with all of our needs return back to him all of our needs We return them back to Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala And we ask of Him That is one of the meanings of As-Samad That all of the creation Return back to Him Return their needs back to Him And they are all servants of Him Fa-inna samad من نحوه القلوب بالرغبة والرهبة وذلك لكثرة خصال الخير فيه. So as samad is the one who all of the hearts of creation they are inclined and return back to him in love and fear and hope and that is the way of Ahl-Sunnah that it is balanced between the fear and the hope so the hearts of creation, they are inclined to Allah in fear and in hope. And that is because of the great multitude, the great number of the perfect names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the perfection of all of them. وَلِهَذَا قَالَ and that's why the Jumhur, the, the the majority of the Salaf, they said, amongst them, Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma, that as-samad alladhi kamula su'dudu, fahuwa al-alim alladhi kamula ilmuhu, al-qadil alladhi kamulat kudratuhu, al-hakim alladhi Kamula hukmuhu, al-rahim alladhi kamulat rahmatuhu, Many of the Salaf, they said, in regards to the name of Allah, As-Samad, that He is the One who is perfect in His uh, Majesty over us, and He is the Knowledgeable who is perfect and complete in His knowledge the all-capable who is perfect and complete and all-powerful in his ability, and the wise who is all-perfect and complete in his wisdom, and the merciful perfect and complete in his mercy, and the generous in perfection and completion of his generosity to his creation. These are all from the meanings of Asamad. So those are some of the names that you see here, and they are connected with Surah Al-Ikhlas, "Allahu Ahad, Samad." Those are two of the names there, indicating the oneness of Allah, indicating that all of creation they are in submission to Allah, and that we must return all of our affairs back to Him. When a person thinks about those names then You recognize that you have only one Lord To call upon with all of your needs Your trust and your reliance and your dependence Your tawakkul in Allah becomes stronger You know that there is nobody else Who is going to aid you Nobody else who can do what you require Your dua cannot be answered by them But only by Allah just like in the Hadith that if all of the umma, walla anna al-umma, istama'at 'ala an ynf'ouk bi-shay, lam ynf'ouk illa bi-shay in qad katbahu Allahulak. If all of the people, they got together to do some good for you, they would not be able to unless it was something decreed by Allah. Walla istama'at 'ala an yzurrouk bi-shay, lam yzurrouk illa bi-shay in qad katbahu Allahulak. And if all of them got together, plotted and planned to do some evil against you, they would not be able to. Even if all of them got together plotting and planning and scheming, they would not be able to do you any harm unless it was something decreed by Allah upon you. So you recognize the oneness of Allah and that all of the affairs are under the control of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Answer so your trust and your dependence and your reliance and your dua. It is all to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. If you seek aid and assistance, seek it from Allah alone. If you ask, then ask from Allah alone. So it is important to ponder and to think over these different names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That brings us to the end of that chapter briefly regarding Al-Ahad, Al-Wahid and Al-Samad. Any questions up to there then? It does not necessitate, this does not mean a Muslim, a Muslim who kills somebody who commits murder. Murder is not a sin that you would stay in the hellfire forever upon. Because we know there is only one sin that cannot be forgiven, and that is the sin of major shirk. So the ayah here, when you put it into the context of everything else we know, then we know that a person who dies upon Tawheed it would not mean that the action of murder, if he hadn't committed shirk, would be an action that would lead him to the hellfire forever. It is good to look at the tafsir of a Sa'di, nice and simple, easy book of tafsir, tafsir of Al Imam As Sa'di. It is available in Urdu, maybe as well in English now, I don't know, yes. in English as well. So that's a very small, brief book of tafsir. It doesn't go into anything complicated, basically just tells you, Allah says this here, and it means this. Simple one line, two line, just tells you, it means this and it means that. Doesn't go into differences of opinion, or other hadith or narrations. Very simple, Allah says this, and what that means is this. Allah says this, and there are three benefits we can take, and they are these. So I would recommend... Having a look at that book for these ayat and other things that may look complicated, but in reality, when you put them together with all of the Quran and Sunnah and the evidences and principles, then they make sense in context. Anybody else? Just the name of Allah, Al Muzil, meaning translation absolutely means the. Al mudil you mean? Or from Zallaah to somebody who is uh, someone who uh, degrades somebody, or, or the meaning of it linguistically to degrade, to humiliate. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is there significance of why there's only maybe a few, or even that one that's talking about Allah's punishment instead of talking about Allah's mercy? Or because the names and attributes of Allah, there are certain actions that Allah does but they don't necessarily have a specific name on them. There are certain actions Allah does, but they don't necessarily have a name, an exact name for that particular action. So the actions that Allah does are many, but not every single one you can derive a name from it. So there are many other actions of Allah or uh Explanations of the punishments of Allah But they don't all have exact derived names upon each Because the names of Allah must be Things that are absolutely of perfection Not names that can be used for perfection And they can be used for Criticism or something degrading They have to be names of absolute perfection and that's why you even get differences between some of the scholars as to whether certain names are actually names of Allah or if they are just descriptions that Allah does this to the disbelievers, He humiliates the disbelievers, etc. There are some differences on some of them. Is that an actual name? Can we name that as a name of Allah or is it just an explanation that Allah does this? Because Allah does certain things Doesn't mean there's a name to be made from that action So some of them there are differences over Whether you can actually use it as a name of Allah Or whether it's just a, 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 a an explanation of some actions that Allah does Because the names have to be pure uh, perfection And they cannot have the meanings of any uh, a deficiency in them One of the best books for that is uh, uh, Al-Qawa'id Al-Muthla It's complicated, it's difficult, but uh, It's in English Al-Shaykh al means explanation of Al-Qawa'id Al-Muthla The exemplary principles, I think it's called Probably in the bookshop here That explains the principles of how You uh, understand what is a name of Allah What is an attribute of Allah What cannot be a name of Allah All the principles of how it works That's in the books regarding the principles of the names and attributes. Here we're not doing principles. These are just explanations of the meanings. The principles of what is a name, what is not a name. Those things you'll find in that book. The exemplary principles. The explanation of a Shaykh al Al Al-Qawa'id al-Muthla. Anybody else? All right. It's not a habit that a person should get into that you constantly keep saying to people, "Make du'a for me, make du'a for me." Some people get into a habit. It's a, it's like a habit. Every time they see somebody, or and then when they're going to leave, make du'a for me, make du'a for me. You don't get into a habit like this. What about yourself, making du'a for yourself in the last third of the night, uh, when you're traveling, in the prostration in prayer? There are many times on the Friday. There is a time on the Friday, many times where your dua is more likely to be answered. So a person should not get into the habit of always saying to people, make dua for me, make dua for me. As a concept, it can be done. You could say to somebody on some occasion, you know, make dua for me on such and such. I'm in some issue, some situation. But it's not something you get into a habit of. And neither is it something that you specify, like the people of innovation, they say, go to the Mawlana, Tell him whatever your problems are; he'll be able to sort it out for you. Then people they start going into the the doors of shirk. Even more than that, they'll say, "Go to the maulana, go to the imam; he'll make du'a for you. He's going to wipe on your shoulders. He does this and that, and on your head, and then your du'a will be answered." That type of thing is not from the sunnah. That is obviously misguidance. Some people take things too far, so you should not get. Uh, uh, you should not open up that door. To become a vast door that you constantly get into asking people for dua and go to this person and go to that person. Then you start opening up the doors into shirk. So if you're praying and you get into a circumstance, whatever the circumstance might be, that you have to break the prayer or you have to make some movement in the prayer. We covered this once here, in fact, a few years ago, in the book of Fiqh. There are certain instances where you are allowed to move in the prayer. Normally, movement in the prayer is not allowed, only the movements of the actual prayer Of course, sujood Any other movements, not allowed But there are circumstances when they are So for example, one of them was If there is danger Imagine you're praying now In some of the countries where You have poisonous snakes, scorpions All types of things in the deserts You're praying and then all of a sudden You see a scorpion coming Right there in front of you as you're praying A scorpion is walking right up to you permissible for you to move now or not? absolutely you're praying at home and you notice that your small toddler two year old has started walking you're in the kitchen or somewhere has started walking right towards the gas the cooker and there's boiling water on top of it he's messing around are you allowed to move now? just to grab the child? permissible because there's a clear threat and danger about to possibly occur permissible to move in the prayer With answering a door and those kinds of things, you have to look at that situation a bit better. Because just if you're praying at home and somebody knocks on the door, isn't instantly automatic, I need to go open it. Could be an Amazon delivery, they leave it next door with the neighbor, give you the the slip. So you have to examine those situations. It's not just a case of anything happens, I can just break the prayer. Prayer, going out of it or moving within it, only in Necessity, if there is some necessity, especially in the fard prayers, the five obligatory prayers, especially in those, then it's only out of necessity you would do it. If you did it then and you broke your prayer, then when you come back afterwards, you would have to repeat the whole prayer. If you break and go and that, it's gone, then upon the opinion of the, or many of the scholars, the prayer is one unit of worship overall it is one complete unit of worship so in that sense you should repeat the full unit of worship which is four raka'at for asa. but you only ever move and break away in necessity that's the key at the beginning oh. uh, this always happens firstly nobody and then suddenly everybody go on uh, i go to a non-Muslim school. Mm. Uh, in schools it's difficult you have to try like we were talking about this a few weeks ago you have to just try and pray the prayers where you are able to pray in the lunch breaks in other breaks that they give you nowadays obviously time is very tight If he doesn't give you permission, I don't know what the laws are and what you're able to do and if you can speak to the governors and those kinds of things to get the right to pray and to fulfill your worship. But if those are avenues that are open with these non-Muslim schools, then the parents should definitely take up those avenues if they are available. If you're allowed to put up these types of uh, queries to them regarding personal worship and belief and things and some time or break or whatever then that's something you have to do. Otherwise, if you were compelled like that and you were uh, prohibited, then there's nothing you could have done. You have to pray it afterwards then in that situation there. Anybody else? was just following from the other question, complete a or any for So if you're praying, then you're supposed to have a sutra, some type of item in front of you which starts from the ground and goes up and it doesn't have to be thick it can be as thin as that something that starts from the ground and goes up to a a length of your arm span from your elbow to your fingertips roughly that length because in the hadith it mentions roughly the length of the back of the saddle that you sit on the horses we're talking just ba- basically 30 40 centimeters something of that nature So if you have something from the ground upwards when you're praying outside of the jama'ah, in the jama'ah you don't need a sutra because the imam's sutra is the sutra for everybody else. But when you're praying by yourself, sunnah or something else, you should have that sutra. If for example you came in and you were late for example for the prayer, and then everybody finished and they got up, so now your sutra was the person in front of you but he's moved and he's gone. So now are you allowed to move in the prayer to regain the sutra? Some of the scholars have said, yes, you can do that, because there are some examples from the salaf where they did that. Minimal movement though. We're not talking about walking from the back of the mosque to the front of the mosque. But if you were close by somewhere, one row or somewhere close and he goes, you can make a step or two forward just to regain a sutra. That is something evidenced from the actions of the salaf. I'm not sure about that type of action Um, You see sometimes people They are praying without a sutra And you put one in front of them Allah alam if that's something That should be done generally speaking Because uh, sometimes it could be That a person who you see without a sutra Is in that situation Because he doesn't believe it correct To walk to regain the sutra Maybe Maybe he was late and everybody got up and left, but he's not going to move forward because he doesn't really hold that opinion of moving in the prayer to regain the sutra. Maybe. It could also be most likely for many people that they don't even know the obligation of having a sutra. So for you to put something in front of them, they're just going to be praying confused what's going on. You need to explain to them and give them da'wah. Perhaps if you see a person praying like that, you speak to them and give them some advice and you ask them, do you know And are you aware about the ruling of the sutra and the sunnah regarding that? Perhaps it's better to take those methods first rather than uh, placing the sutras in front of people. Uh, You know, maybe a person doesn't view the permissibility of walking to regain it, or maybe he just doesn't even know. So I don't know about uh, if there's any fatwas or speech of the scholars to place the sutra in front of someone. If you need to pass them by, you have a situation where you need to pass them by and in front of them is the only way, then maybe in that case you put something down before you pass by. But just to do it because you see someone hasn't got one, you think I need to do the sunnah for them and you put it there for them, maybe that needs a bit more looking into. Anyone else? Start. So if you are praying your salah and then you realize um, you might not have entered, entered the time for the salah. If you you pray, realize what? Like the time for salah I might not Um, Entered yet? Yeah, so should you stop and check the time, or should you just finish? If you start praying before the time, your prayer will be Invalid. invalid. The prayer must be in the time. So if you start praying and then you know and you realize, wait, the time hadn't come in yet, then you break your prayer. It's invalid, and then you wait for the time, and then you pray. But uh, uh, a person going into a situation of doubt during the prayer, that shouldn't occur. It shouldn't occur because one of the conditions of the prayer, the greatest condition of the prayer is the timing. So you would never say your takbiratul ihram and start praying until you've actually verified that it's the time for the prayer. There shouldn't really be a situation where you just start praying and then you think, wait, was the timing yet? The first thing you should do is check the time because that's a condition for the validity of your prayer, then you start praying. So in that instance, uh, if you did start praying and the time hasn't entered, your prayer would be invalid. If you ended up starting and then you get confused, you could finish the prayer and then check. And if it was, you'd have to repeat the prayer. Last one. If you're going to go traveling somewhere, you're going to be traveling, you're going to be on a journey, a safar, then we know it is permissible in the sunnah to shorten and combine the prayers. Uh, originally, originally, the prayers were actually shortened. Originally, dhuhr was only two raka'at and asr was only two raka'at and isha was only two raka'at originally. Then afterwards, the ruling changed, and the ruling was that if you are resident, you're not traveling anywhere, you're at home, you now have to pray four for the four for asr, four for isha. But if you're traveling, you can stay upon the original ruling of twos, to make it easy upon the journey. But the scholars have mentioned that permission of combining and shortening only applies when you are actually traveling or the journey has begun. So if you're going to travel tomorrow at 1 p.m., no, 1.30 p.m., uh, or or 1 o'clock. At 1 o'clock, these days, Dhuhr has come in, and Asr has not yet come in. So can you think to yourself, okay, let me pray my Dhuhr and Asr right now because I'm about to go traveling. Most of the scholars say, no. You can't combine your Asr yet because you're not actually traveling yet. You haven't gone anywhere yet. They say that traveling licenses only come into play when you are actually traveling. So in that kind of situation, if Dhuhr has come in and you haven't left your house, you should pray Dhuhr and then go. And then on your journey somewhere later on, you can pray a two-four Asr. But there, many of them say you can't combine prior to leaving uh, and starting the journey. Once you're on the journey, you have a choice. Imagine you leave at 10 a.m. And you're going to be traveling all day and get to your destination at 5, 6, 7. So now you have a choice. You can pray a dhuhr and asr at the dhuhr time, or leave it and pray dhuhr and asr at asr time. And if your journey is really long, later on you have the same choice with maghrib and isha at maghrib time, Or leave them and pray them both at Isha time. But that's after you've begun the journey, not before. That's the same as fasting. When you're traveling, you don't have to fast. So imagine tomorrow in Ramadan now, imagine the next day, you've got your tickets booked for the flight, you're traveling somewhere. You know you're traveling somewhere inshaAllah, you've got your tickets, everything ready, airport tomorrow you're going. So tomorrow morning, are you going to get up and have your suhoor and start fasting or not? Your flight's at 1 p.m. Yeah. You're going to start fasting? No. Depends. Depends. You've got your tickets booked. Confirmed. Guaranteed seat. Not a waiting list. No. No. Is that the no. to the but That's an option. That's an option. Uh, when you're traveling, in fasting, it's an option in terms of your ability. It's up to you. You're allowed to fast. You're allowed to miss. But let's say somebody's taking the opinion, they're going to miss it. But do they miss it from that morning? From that morning they don't have suhoor, nothing, even though their journey is going to start at 1 p.m. Tickets are 1 p.m. flight. They're going to leave home at 11 or something, get to the airport here, Bradford Leeds or something, uh, and then uh, they're going to leave at 1 p.m. So from 5 a.m. suhoor time to 1 p.m., are they travelers yet? They're at home yet. Then at 1 p.m. the flight takes off and they're gone, they're travelers now. So can they miss the whole day? Do they have to have suhoor in the morning and fast? Or can they miss the whole day because they are traveling that day? It's a difference of opinion. Some of them say, you're not traveling till one o'clock. Up until one o'clock, are you a traveler? No. After one o'clock, you set off and you go, now you've become a traveler. So they say, some scholars, you start your fasting in the morning, and when it gets to one o'clock, you get in the flight and you're gone, Now you're a traveler, you can start eating if you want, and you can break that day. But others, there is an opinion. Some others, they say you can miss the whole day because you are certain you're going to be traveling that day. Uh, You have the certainty of traveling that day, so you don't have to fast the whole day from the beginning. But others, they've said you're not a traveler yet, so you have to fast. What if you get to the airport at 1 o'clock, and all of a sudden a little bit of snow and it's canceled the... airport is closed, back home again, you haven't gone anywhere the whole day, why were you eating all day? So this is why the scholars, they say some of them, you only do that when you're traveling, with prayer, definitely, you only do that once you begin your journey. So we'll have to conclude and there now then, inshallah ta'ala will resume, it's gonna be in a while now, the next, my next Thursday for this class in two weeks time is not on, and the one after that is not on, so it's gonna be uh, a few weeks Next uh, in two weeks time It's going to be close to uh, conference time as well And then the two weeks after that I'm traveling so it's going to be in uh, mid-January Six weeks Whatever it works out Inshallah ta'ala